Okay, well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Did I hear the words orange fluff from somebody? Somebody said orange. There it was. Okay, I can't wait to hear about that. That was exciting. It said, what, do you, what have you eaten? And I heard orange fluff from back there. So that was fun. But speaking of Thanksgiving, I have a couple of, I, I have six points I want to make with you guys from what you just experienced. You probably ate a lot of food, maybe watched some football, hung out with some family or some friends. But here's a couple of things you may or may not know about Thanksgiving. Number one. Department of Transportation this year estimated 60 million people traveled this year. There was this longing to get out because of COVID over the past several years, and 60 million of us traveled, I was one of them, to go see family and friends this year. That's like close to 15% of America was out and about. Number two, who remembers the Butterball turkey commercials? Do y'all remember Butterball? Some of you? Okay. Butterball has a hotline, and on Thanksgiving Day, that hotline receives over 100,000 phone calls of people who have destroyed their turkeys. (laughs) This is true, this is a true fact. And so they call it and they try to help them and survive and just kind of make do with whatever they have or where they've been. So that's a fun fact. Number three, um, the average calories consumed on Thanksgiving day. Okay, so by the the Government Health Association, whatever you wanna call it, 2000 calories is normal, okay? Do you wanna guess how many average calories are consumed on Thanksgiving day? You could just, just say it to somebody around you. This will be fun. Just, just throw it out there. Okay, average is 2,000. So the average on Thanksgiving Day is 5,000, which is two and a half times a normal day. But to get an average of 5,000, you're going to have six, seven, eight, and those at four, three, and two average it out. So that's an epic day of eating right there. The very first Thanksgiving, uh, turkey was not on the menu at the first Thanksgiving. Their best estimate, it was venison, duck, goose, Oysters, lobster, eel, and fish were likely served alongside pumpkins and cranberries, but not pumpkin pie and not cranberry sauce. Okay, so now here's another fun fact. You get to play along with this one. Out of a normal Thanksgiving spread, whether it's turkey, mashed potatoes and gravy, maybe some type of vegetable or a salad or dessert, what normal serving of what type of food packs the most calories in uh, the serving, okay? Just think about it. What is it? Is it mashed potatoes? Is it butter on the mashed potatoes? Is it gravy? Is it turkey? Is it ice cream? What, what, what is it? Okay, turn to someone and say what it is. Oh, stuffing. I didn't think about that one. Did anyone say pumpkin pie? It is not pumpkin pie. How many of you had pecan pie over Thanksgiving? Okay, that's the, that's the highest caloric intake on Thanksgiving Day. So give yourselves a hand. Way to go. Awesome. Feel good about that. Now, A lot of football was played, a lot of football was watched, but the actual first football game played on Thanksgiving Day was in 1876. Yale played Princeton in the first ever Thanksgiving Day football match, and that started the onslaught of football for the rest of the years, on and on and on and on. And now it's like it's taken over every channel every day of the week. It's it's nonstop football. I wanted to let you laugh. I want to have some fun with you because I know you're coming off this massive eating frenzy and you're still probably digesting at this moment. But we're going to slide into, uh, before we go into the scripture for the day, I want to transition from an incredible tradition of Thanksgiving. uh, Before we get into the scripture, a story called The Legend of the Ham Pan. Some of you may have heard this. And when I start reading it, you'll be like, okay, I've heard that. Listen to the story of the legend of the ham pan because it's going to flow right into the scripture of today of what we're talking about, how traditions can be awesome and traditions can lead us astray and how do we determine which is which. Here we go. Legend of the ham pan. A young girl was watching her mother bake a ham for for family gathering and noticed her mom cutting off the ends of the ham 
before putting it in the oven. Mom, why do you cut off the ends before baking the ham? Hmm, I don't know. I think it helps soak up the juices while it's baking, but I'm not sure. That's just the way your grandma always did it, so I've just always cut them off. Why don't you call grandma and ask her? So the little girl phones her grandma and asks, Grandma, mom's making a ham, and she cuts off the ends of the ham before she puts it in the oven. She said that is probably to help soak up the juices, but she wasn't sure. She said you'd know because she learned how to cook from you. Well, that's true, she said. I do cut off the ends of the ham before baking, but I'm not sure why I do it either. I learned how to cook from my mom. You should ask her. So the inquisitive little girl called her great-grandmother. We're four generations deep now. She calls her great-grandmother and says, great-grandma, mom and grandma said they learned how to cook from you. Do you cut off the ends of the ham to help it soak up the juices? The great-grandmother laughed and said, oh no, sweetie, I just never had a pan big enough to hold the whole ham, so I always had to cut off the ends to make it fit in the oven. So it's funny, it's comical, I love, I couldn't wait to read that to you guys, but it's, it's where tradition can maybe lead us astray a little bit. It was just assumed, it was given. And now I have a quote for you as we get into the scripture. Tradition is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. As I read the scripture to you today, I'm gonna ask you, before I ask you to stand, don't, don't choose yet. It's a long passage. Mark 7, 1 through 23. I'm gonna read it to you. It's on the screens, but if any of you, Calvary Online, traditional service here, if you want to stand, I invite you to stand, but make sure you've got your hand on a seat in front of you, okay? Here we go. Look on the screens, I'll read it to you. Mark 7, 1 through 23. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled. That means they were unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with deviled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do so many things like that. Again, Jesus called, to the crowd and to, called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. Are you so dull, he said? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, 
murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these, evil, all these evils come from inside and defile a person. Let's pray. God, thank you for a wonderful holiday weekend where we can come together and laugh and learn and worship and become closer to you. Holy Spirit, flow through this place like a flame rest upon my tongue. Give me the words you want me to speak and I'll allow everyone here to have soft hearts and open minds. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the Old Testament uses dirt and uncleanliness as a symbol for sin. Because if you are unclean because of your sin, you will be cut off from worshiping in the community of God. So I have two examples for you guys. You can look on the screen. Leviticus 14, 46. Anyone who goes into the house while it is closed up will be unclean until evening. Anyone who sleeps or eats in the house must wash their clothes. Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Now, you wouldn't be allowed to enter the temple, the synagogue, a church, if you were defiled, if you were unclean, if you were, if you were sinful. You'd have to go through ritualistic laws and ceremonies in order to become clean. But you would be cut off from God, you'd be cut off from people. And that's why dirt is used as a symbol of uncleanliness. Sin destroys. We all realize that. Sin destroys people, relationships, the world around us. It destroys one another. And most importantly, it destroys our relationship with God. So how does a person become clean? How can you have a right relationship with God? How can you live a life in a way that it was meant to be lived? Not only to be objectively clean, but also to experience like you are clean. That's what the passage is about. We are going to see an interaction and an argument and an a debate here as we, as we unpack this scripture together. So the answer to the question, how can I be made clean? How can I wash away my sin? How can I be saved? How can I become spotless? The Pharisees have one way, and Jesus has a completely opposite way. The Pharisees focus on the outside in. Jesus focuses on the inside out. One way focuses on external appearance and actions, while the other focuses upon your heart. One, you have to work so that you can get clean. The other, you receive a cleansing and you live out your cleanliness. I want to tell you a little story. Um, think about the olden days and out in a farm and people paint these wells. I'm talking about a water well. People paint them in paintings, they're famous, all those kinds of things. But out on a farm where you don't have city water, you have a well. And the old picture of a well is this circular, uh, circular area with a little roof on it. Then you see a little crank and a bucket. And they would crank that bucket all the way down into the well to get the water. They'd crank it and it would bring it back up. But what comes up in that bucket is what's down in that well. You can't see it. You don't know what's down there. But you can rest assured that what comes up in that bucket is what's down in that well. We're going to refer to that quite a bit today as Jesus talks to us about what is in here is eventually what comes out here. We're gonna look at the answers about how we become clean. So we're gonna break this down in three parts. The Pharisees accuse Jesus. Jesus addresses the Pharisees, and then he brings the crowd in and his disciples. He said, let me really explain to you what true uncleanliness is. So let's go to the first part. The Pharisees accuse Jesus and his disciples. So you have to picture now, we've been talking about Mark for months. You have heard about Jesus' teaching. You've heard about his healing. You've heard about his casting out demons. 
He's resurrected the dead. He has become incredibly popular. Everyone is following him. Wherever he goes, the crowds are massive. And so the Pharisees have decided, we can't do this anymore. We're gonna send in the big dogs. The Pharisees and the scribes that are talked about in this passage are from Jerusalem. They had to travel 90 miles from Jerusalem to Capernaum because they were gonna put an end to this Jesus. They were gonna stop him once and for all. So it was a big deal. They were held in high regard. It was great pomp and circumstance. And as they traveled those 90 miles, you can bet people were talking. They get to Capernaum. They realize they've had a real hard time getting Jesus, you know, trying to, you know, accuse him of something. So what they do differently in this scripture is they go after his disciples. They said, if we can't, if we can't really corner Jesus the way we want to, Let's go after his disciples because they are followers of him. They represent him. That's where this accusation comes from. Watch this. The, the, the Pharisees' focus was not only on Jesus as much as it was the behavior of the disciples. So the Pharisees and the teachers of uh, law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So, they caught the disciples eating bread without, they didn't wash their hands. Now, let's talk about that. Washing your hands for cleanliness, yes, they did, okay? This is not about that. This is about the ritual of washing your hands. I'm going to walk you through what that ritual was so you understand. Had nothing to do with cleanliness, so let's remove that. But they had to get them on something, so this is what they decided to do. The followers of Jesus were eating before washing their hands, as is ceremony in the tradition of the elders, okay? When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash their hands. They observe such as the washing of cups and pots, copper vessels and dining couches. So this is all part of the ritual or the ceremony. It was part of what they called ceremonial law. Now, back in the day, the Torah, there was written law and the laws were, they, they kept them very close to their hearts they obeyed them, they followed them. Let's use an example, 10 commandments. There's an easy one, okay? 10 commandments, first four commandments, it's about God. Commandment number five, it's about your parents. Last five is about you, all right? So they would stick to these things. But when they talk about the oral law, verbal, tradition of the elders, it had nothing to do with scripture. And that's why they called it that. They were adding to the law. You have the written law and the oral law, okay? Here's the actual ceremony that they were supposed to do when the time was right, and I'll explain that. Here we go. Traditionally, Jews are required to wash their hands and say a blessing before eating any meal that includes bread. The ritual is typically done using a two-handed cup, a two-handled cup, but any vessel will do. There are various customs regarding how the water should be poured, but a common practice is to pour twice on the right hand, followed by twice on the left hand. And if you're a lefty like me, you got to reverse it, okay? Now, Hasidic custom was to pour three times on each hand. We're talking drops. So again, this is not for cleanliness, it's for ritual. Drops here, drops here. Using the non-dominant hand to pour first can feel unnatural or awkward, highlighting that the washing is done for ritual rather than pragmatic purposes. The tradition is unrelated to personal hygiene and a person is still required to perform this ritual even if his or her hands are clean. Here is the problem. Here's where the argument begins. This is not commanded in the Jewish law or the Torah. 
This was an oral tradition that was passed down. It was not written law. Whenever you serve the creature rather than the creator, you are involved in idolatry. This is what was happening. They were taking things in the law that was written and that was formal, and they were adding to it. They wouldn't dare write it because it wasn't scripture, but it became an oral law, an oral tradition that was passed down through the elders. According to the Old Testament, only priests were required to wash their hands only before entering into the tabernacle. Over time, the Pharisees added tradition rather than stick with scripture. Tradition turns toxic when we enforce man-made traditions as God-made commandments. Now, the Pharisees would make sure that they were um, very, very strong on obeying the law. The reason they would add these oral traditions is because they wanted a ranking system so that they could find out if they were better than you or if they were better than me. It was how they would rank each other. Well, I did the appropriate washing and I did the ceremony of thing here, but you didn't do that over there. And there were laws for everything. There was oral tradition. This is why they did this. Now, as all these laws were created, if you remember back in Matthew 5, when Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount, this is when he flipped the script on everything. He changed everything. And he goes back to the commandments. And he says, it's not the person who commits the physical act of murder that breaks the sixth commandment. It's also the person who hates his brother or sister that commits and breaks the sixth commandment. So this is when Jesus changed everything. He said, it's not about the act of doing, even if you think it, even if you look at a woman or a man with lust, that is breaking the commandment right there. It's all about the intentions of the heart, not just about the outside actions. The gospel isn't behavior modification, it's transformation. I'm gonna say that again. The gospel is not, not about behavior modification, it's about transformation. So the Pharisees were adding to the law and that's where the danger came in. They believed, I talked to Dale about this a couple weeks ago, they believed by adding more law, they could speed up the coming of the Messiah. That was their goal. This law is great, it's the written, it's the Torah, but I'm gonna add all this other law and maybe it'll speed up the coming of the Messiah. But little did they know they were literally looking at the Messiah while this argument was taking place. Okay, so that's number one. That is the, the Pharisees accusing Jesus' disciples right there. Number two, Jesus now addresses the Pharisees and he does it very harshly, watch this. Jesus responds in verse six, he says harshly, he calls them hypocrites. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites as it is written. Okay, so a hypocrite is a pretender. It's an actor. You're pretending to be something that you're not. Listen to this, James Edwards in his commentary writes, it is a term taken from theater, meaning to play a part on stage. I didn't knew that, I, I didn't know that. I, when I really dug into the hypocrite, it's a theatrical phrase, meaning you're gonna come up on stage, you're gonna play this other part, and it's a it, you're a hypocrite. You're doing something that is not you. You could be showing a smile on your face when you're actually very angry and hating towards your brother. That would be a hypocrite. You express words of kindness and flattery. Actually, your heart is very critical and gossipy. You're a hypocrite. Back to the verse. Jesus just said they're hypocrites. Now he goes further. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus is saying they're praising God on the outside, but they don't really love or desire God on the inside. So we're in this external facade thing right now. And over the many, many years of pastoring that I've done, I've hired a lot of pastors. And when I quickly went from a secular world into the pastor world, I began to hire some pastors. I'd look at the resume, 
I'd do the interview, hire, whatever, you know, if it worked out. But little did I know, it, it's a different role that I was trying to fill. A pastor is more of a 27, a 24 seven role, okay? You're always on, you're always working, you're always doing things. And so I began to realize quickly that I had made a couple of bad hires because the, the facade, the external appearance of these guys or girls uh, told me one thing, but then in all actuality, I found out something else. So I changed my hiring process. I had to be able to figure this thing out. I had to get to the heart of the matter because what comes up in that bucket is what's down in that well. And so when I began to hire pastors after I learned this, I would look at the resume, I would do the interview, I would have lunch with the pastor and his spouse and their kids. And then I added one more thing. I would always have them come with me on a summer camp or a winter camp or a lock-in or an all-nighter. Because regardless of how well they interviewed and how awesome their resume was, at three in the morning when you're exhausted and there's teenagers running all over the place and you have to deal with that, what is in here comes out. And that was a better way for me to understand What's really in the heart? Where's the integrity? Where's the character? What, what are their motives? And that really helped me understand the facade versus the heart. The intent and the heart of the law is a relationship with God. Nothing else. We don't need to add to it. It's about having a relationship with God. Let's continue in the verse. Jesus said, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. Commandment number five. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. All right, let me explain this. Corban is a law that they added that would allow you to donate all of your things to the temple. Sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? But you could use them your whole life, but when you die, all your things go to the temple. Sounds awesome, but here's why they did it. Uh, cultures back then would, parents would raise kids, kids would grow, kids would grow older, parents grow older, and then the kids would take care of the parents. The Jewish culture is really good at this still to this day, by the way. But what they were doing is creating laws so they didn't have to do that. If I am in my, you know, 40s, 50s, whatever, and I have a house, and I have a kitchen table, I have some livestock, whatever I have, I'm going to dedicate to the Lord. This is now Corbin. What that means is my parents can't move in with me. I can't care for them. I can't sell anything to help care for them. This is why they did that. It sounded so nice, and it sounded so pious and all that, but they were creating laws to get around what their responsibilities were. Jesus uses commandment number five, and he, he literally hits them with this. He said, the commandment is to love, your, love and honor and obey your mother and father. Yet you guys create this Corbin so that you don't have to do that. You create laws to get around your responsibilities. Number three, the Pharisees addressed Jesus, accused him. Jesus just told them they were hypocrites and they were wrong. And now Jesus is gonna kind of huddle everybody up and say, hey, this is what I'm trying to tell you. Jesus calls the crowd to him to listen and understand. Verse 15, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. The Pharisees thought that what they did on the outside would contaminate what's on the inside. That was the outside in approach. So then the solution was just to fix the outside of your life. Change the thing on the outside, your circumstances, your actions, whatever. That'll cleanse what on the inside. 
But Jesus says, no, you got it wrong. That's not how it works. He reverses the flow. He says, it's actually what's on the inside that then defiles the outside. Jesus is internalizing the nature of sin so that the solution isn't to first change your behavior or circumstance. The solution is that you need grace that will transform you from the inside so that you can be clean on the outside. Behaviors will change after the heart changes first. It's not our actions that make us dirty. It's our heart that makes us dirty. We don't have a behavioral problem as much as we have a heart problem. We have to realize that we are first transformed by God in Christ into who we are, and that's what makes us whole. That's what makes us clean. Look at this quote from Paul Tripp. Your biggest problem in life is not that which is outside of you is your biggest problem. It is that which is inside of you. The greatest evil in this world is not anything outside of you. The greatest evil in this world is that which is inside of you, your very own heart. That's your greatest problem. You know, it took me really a long time to unpack that, to really walk through that verse. And then I thought, you know, when you look at the world today and you look at things that aren't good or things that are bad or people that make bad choices or whatever the case may be, when you really unpack that and say, if the internal heart of the person would have been, would have been solved or made pure or, or, or just fixed first, the actions on the outside wouldn't be bad. They wouldn't be negative. They wouldn't be harmful. It starts with the heart. Jesus then continues. He says, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now, there's a reason I did six over here and six over here. Mark is very specific in how he writes this part. He chooses his words carefully. It's, it's intentionally written to form a pattern. The first six words were in the plural and they denote evil acts. The last six terms occur in the singular and they denote evil attitudes. The acts and the attitudes find their genesis in the heart and they have their source from the evilness inside of your heart. So if you gossip, you've got a gossipy heart. If you're critical, you have a critical heart. If you slander, you have a slanderous heart. Because from within is where all these attitudes and sins and actions come out. That's why the solution to becoming clean is not an outside behavioral change, but an internal transformational change through redemption in Jesus Christ. Let me bring you back. What comes up in that bucket is what's down in that well. I've had the privilege of meeting so many people over like 30 years of ministry. And what was so fun about it when I started way back in Texas, it was we'd see people and it was a very large church and you'd run into these people and you'd, you'd, you'd look at a couple and say, oh my gosh, that's the perfect couple. These guys are great. These guys are whatever. But then what would happen as time would go on is every now and then one of these couples that we thought was just so aligned and it appeared so good from the outside, church every Sunday, you know, they'd, they'd upgrade their car, they'd upgrade their house, they'd move to a new neighborhood, they might move to a new city, and then you see divorce. And things begin, and you just begin to scratch your head. You're like, what is going on? People who feel unsettled or depressed or low self-esteem, they, they understand there has to be more to life than this. So what's the solution? They change the jobs. They change where they live. They move away. 
They come back to this cycle feeling restless, feeling depressed, feeling like they're not such a good person. But at the end of the day, they realize that their situation seems to follow them wherever they go and whatever they do, because you take you wherever you go. You take you wherever you go. Change of location does not change your heart orientation. I wish that was mine, but that's Dale's. Change of location does not change your heart orientation. It's not until you finally realize that the issue lies inside the heart. Once that is revealed, then the real work begins. Once the heart is changed, everything on the outside will begin to change as well. How many of you guys remember Charlie Brown? Anybody? Charlie Brown? Oh, good. Okay, a bunch of you. Um, I've got a picture of Charlie Brown we're going to put up. There it is. Maybe you watched a cartoon. Maybe you did the comic strips, whatever. Okay? Look at me left to right. You got Snoopy, Charlie Brown. On the ledge there, see Woodstock and his little friends? You got Franklin. I'm sorry, you got Linus, Franklin, Marcy, Sally, Pigpen. Guess who I'm going to stop on? Everybody looks to the right. Pigpen. Remember Pigpen? Pigpen's a guy that always had this dirt cloud over him wherever he went, whatever he did. In school, dirt cloud. Okay? Out of the park, dirt cloud. Goes to take a shower, comes out, dirt cloud. It's just it's Pigpen. It's just who he is. One of their Halloween specials, he throws that, that sheet over his head and he cuts the eyes out and there's dirt and dust around the sheet on the outside. That's Pigpen. We are all really like Pigpen. That's why I'm showing you this today. We try to run away from our sins. We try to run away from our dirtiness by changing our external appearance and circumstances but we can't get away from it because we need an internal heart change through redemption in Jesus Christ. The only way to have this internal transformation is to wipe away the unclean as if someone else does that for you. That's the only way it's gonna happen, by the love of Jesus Christ. Someone who is willing to take you on, to touch you, to cleanse you, and take on all of your uncleanness therefore giving you his righteousness that only can be done in Jesus. Okay, remember back in Mark chapter 5, we talked about the woman who had a bleeding hemorrhage for 12 years. She was isolated. She was kicked out of the community. She couldn't go to temples. She couldn't worship. She couldn't go eat with anyone. And she was cast out. She was destitute, lost all her money. What does she do? She hears about Jesus. He's coming. She, she waits on the side of the road. Doesn't even touch him. Touches his clothes. He heals her. He makes her clean. Her life begins to make sense. She received that healing because of the power and the work of Jesus in her life. What can wash away my sins? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus is the one, the only one. The only one who can produce an inner heart transformation. Because what comes up in that bucket is what's down in that well. Jesus is the only one that can do that. So if you feel unsettled, if you feel, I don't know, not right, if you feel like you're alone, if you feel unclean or dirty in your life, if that's you, the answer is not to simply change your behavior or your circumstances. The answer is not, first and foremost, to change anything around you. The answer is to bow down before the Lord of creation and the Lord of redemption and worship him to receive the grace of Jesus Christ that has been poured out by his spirit, by his word, into our hearts. Only then will life begin to make sense. Only then will you find peace and reassurance in your life, which is grounded in God through his son. Now, Calvary, Calvary Online, traditional service, 
I know a lot of you have Christ in your heart and in your life, but some of you maybe don't. Some of you aren't sure. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer right now where you can invite Jesus Christ into your heart and in your life and make him your Lord and Savior. All, all you have to do is pray this prayer with me. This is private, it's between you and God, so just silently pray with me what I say to God, and then we'll talk about it. Let's pray. God, thank you for a wonderful day. Thank you that you love me. God, thank you that even when I make bad choices and I sin, you forgive me every time I ask. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I choose to invite you into my heart and into my life, and I make you my Lord and Savior. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, Jesus Christ enters your heart and enters your life, and he will never leave you or forsake you. He will never forget about you. But that's just the start. At Calvary, we want you to understand who Jesus is, but then it's time to understand what you can do to learn more about him. It's called discipleship. We have all kinds of classes and Bible studies and community groups and things you can do to learn more because once he enters your heart and enters your life, it's time to chase after him, become a disciple of him, and learn more about him. What I want to do now is I want to take a moment to, um, as, we, as we transition into our ministry response time, I want you to take about 30 seconds here in just, just a moment. And I want you to kind of sit there with a posture with your hands out like this, and we're just going to listen. In this time of year of Thanksgiving, and we're heading into, you know, we're in Advent, we're in Christmas, all these things, let's focus on what God wants us to give back to him. We have these ascension boards out in the lobbies. Stop by the ascension boards. Read what people are writing up there. It's anonymous. What people have been hanging on for too long, and it's time to give it up to him. Let's just take about 30 seconds. Let's listen. Let's have a posture like this. Let's see who God puts in our heart and in our minds. And then I'll explain what we're going to do next. Let's listen. God put somebody on your heart or on your mind, somebody that you need to reach out to. Maybe in this time of year, there's, there's someone that needs to hear from you. Maybe there's something that God put in your heart or in your mind that you need to give up to him. You know, I was praying with some of the elders backstage earlier and there's a lot of things that we need to forgive. And the hard part about forgiveness is if you don't forgive your brother or sister, actually drinking poison and expecting them to die. That's what non-forgiveness is. It hurts you. If God puts something in your heart and in your mind, you need to give it back to him. Put it on that ascension wall out there. Come up here and pray with us. Talk to us. We want to walk you through this process. Well, thanks guys for being here this morning. It was a pleasure just to worship God together. Um, again, next weekend at 5 p.m., come rain, come shine, Christmas tree lighting. Hope you guys have a great week. Start of Advent. God bless.